So just a couple of things before we get into the message for today. Uh, first of all, we are so lucky to have Lee Borges as our kids director. Um, she is a wonderful person. You have no idea how much she prays for our families here, how much she serves. And so she's, she's not psyched about coming to get on the stage, as no one is. <laughs> but she does it because she has such a heart for our kids. And so now she's at the back and she's coming in. And I get to talk about her as she's coming in. But, I, I mean, there's so much that she does for our families here. I'm really excited for this Easter. She's putting together something really special for families. And so, uh, Lee, we are so grateful for you. Thanks for, for doing that and for leading us. Um, I, I really, I believe in my heart that when God set this church up and he sent us here together as a family, as his uh, body, one of the things that was close to his heart was kids in this neighborhood. We're right across from a school uh, we have been so blessed to build connections, even with kids that live in the apartments around. They come here on Sunday nights. And so uh, I really, I want us to treasure this event, not just because it's a great thing to do at Easter, because I think it's at the heart of what God has, has called us to in this neighborhood. So let's, let's please be praying for it. And again, if you can sign up for anything, head back there. Uh, we'd love all the support we can get. Uh, one more thing before we jump into the message today. I wanted to let you know about something that's happening this Tuesday night uh, at our South Street campus called the First Hymn Project. This is a very unique opportunity that we have uh, to learn a little bit about uh, a very amazing discovery that's happened recently of uh, a, a hymn that was sang by the very early church. So it's, it's, it's this ancient scroll that has got one of the first hymns, they believe, that the church sang. Uh, and Dr. John Dixon, who uh, preaches here at our church on occasion, is going to be kind of leading us through what this is and why it's so important, a time of worship together and hearing about it. Uh, and the kind of the hope is to resurrect this hymn. Uh, over the next few months, the, Dr. John Dixon and others are going to be working to kind of put this hymn back together and sing it as a church. And so he has invited us as a church family to join at South Street, 7 p.m. on Tuesday night to learn more about this, to be a part of this. And so uh, it's going to be a really unique experience, certainly if you're a, a music nerd or a Bible nerd, this is going to be a place you're going to be on Tuesday night. So uh, let me uh, just pray for us now as we head into God's Word and, and, and see what God's got for us in this final week of our Genesis series. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chance to once again come to your Word. God, we just, uh, we remind each other this morning, your Word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. It cuts to the center of who we are, Lord, and it reveals your heart, your will, your way. And so, God, I pray that we would do more than just read and hear this morning, but, God, that we would be transformed by your living word, to love you, to know you, and to uh, image you to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are a movie aficionado like I like to think I am, you know in the kind of last decade of movies has just been one remake after another. There's just been countless remakes these days. It seems like there's no more original stories Right? Even Disney is kind of remaking all of their animated movies into live-action versions. I personally, one of the most offensive movies of all time to me was Maleficent. Did any of you all see the live-action Maleficent? They turned the villain of Sleeping Beauty into this admirable woman. And I'm just like, that's not who Maleficent was. Her name is evil. Why have you done this? You've ruined the movie. But there's other movies like that. There's uh, The Magnificent Seven. Did you all see the remake of The Magnificent Seven? Yeah, maybe? No, just me? Okay, that's okay. I do watch too many movies. But there's remake after remake after remake, right? And here's the, here's the bad news. Is, is Even as we wrestle with this question of is there no more original stories, the truth is there never were any original stories. Do you know that most authors and storytellers believe that there's really only seven plot lines in every story? 
And actually, there, there was an author, Christopher Booker, who thinks you can narrow it down even more to just two plot lines in every story. And the details might change, and the characters might change, and the adventures might change, but every story really fits into one of two categories. Either it's a tragedy or it's a comedy. A tragedy in that the end of the story ends badly. It doesn't resolve. We're left hanging. There is pain. There is loss. Or a comedy. And what that means is, is not necessarily ha-ha funny. It means that the story resolves in a crescendo. Things are restored. Things are set right. The hero saves the day. Everyone lived happily ever after. No matter what story you read or watch or hear, it is going to fall into one of those two things. Either the story will end in a crescendo or in a valley. And I think the question that we might have here at the end of Genesis 3 is, how is this story going to end? This story of these two human beings who were given everything by God but who rejected him, will their story end in tragedy or will it end in hope? And if you know this story, if you've read this story as many of us have, you kind of know there's a lot here in these final verses of the story that make it seem like it might be a tragedy. But what my encouragement is for us this morning is to change the way that we look at the story and to realize the story of Genesis 3 isn't a tragedy, it's a story of hope. And as we put this story in the context of our own lives and we kind of ask ourselves, where do we fit in this story? You might be feeling this morning, is my story a story of tragedy? Is my brokenness and my sin and my choices something that is going to leave me hanging in the valley? And Genesis 3's answer to you is no. Your story is not a tragedy. Your story can be a story of hope because of the God that we find at work, even here at the fall of mankind. So I just I want to jump straight in this morning. I don't want to waste any time because there is a lot to get to. And I want to unpack this story of hope. And we're going to do that through two things. We're going to look at the consequences of Genesis, and we're going to look at the covering of Genesis. So first, we're just going to jump straight into the consequences of Genesis. And the way I want to kind of start this for us is, we left off last week uh, kind of hearing of the fall of uh, mankind. The serpent is cursed by God, and now God's going to turn his attention to Adam and Eve, and he's going to have a conversation with them. And he's really going to unpack and explain to them the consequences of sin on the whole world, what it has done to the world that they live in. And I thought to help us understand this this morning, I wanted to show you a very scientific and clinical kind of explanation of this. I'm going to video, and I'm just going to kind of walk us through it and let it help us understand what has happened to the world because of sin. So let's, let's roll that video real quick. So imagine this washing machine is creation. This is the perfect world that God created. Everything is right, and along comes the serpent. It's like a brick falls into the system. Things are shaking. Things are not quite right. But then, someone listens to the serpent. And they think, maybe, maybe God's withholding on us. Maybe God's not good. And the system starts to shake a little bit more. And then along comes Adam, listens to his wife. Now the system's really shaking. Things are going wrong. Then Andrew Griffiths is born. And Andrew Griffiths thinks, you know what, maybe I can run my life a little bit better than God. I'm gonna go with that. Maybe this seven is telling the truth. And this is the decision of all my time.
if it brings other people to Jesus, it's not worth it. That is a living picture of what sin does. It shakes God's creation to pieces. It fractures the system because we have upset it by putting ourselves in the position of God. By believing the lies of the serpent, what we said to ourselves in our own hearts is, maybe God's not good, maybe God's not needed, maybe we could do this better than him. And the instant we did that, it was like punching a hole in a pane of glass. And lines of pain and brokenness traveled everywhere. We see it immediately, don't we? Adam and Eve fall into shame. They hide from God. God has to come and pursue them. Where are you? What have you done? Have you eaten from that tree that I told you not to eat from? And so now we pick up in this conversation. What I want you to remember as we go through this moment is I want you to understand what this conversation is really about. This is what we read, Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. To the woman... God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's happening in this conversation, and I want to be really clear about this, is not that God is reaching into his bag of curses and saying, because you have slighted me, I'm going to bring great pain upon you. What God is saying is, you have brought great pain upon yourselves by rejecting me by putting yourself in the position that only I can fill, you have fractured everything. And I'm going to unpack that for you. I'm going to explain that to you. What you might notice about Adam and Eve, if we look at the serpent and then we look at the Adam and Eve, is that when God speaks to the serpent, the one who deceived them, what he says is, cast are you. Cast are you for what you have done. Never once does God say to Adam and Eve, cast are you. In fact, the only instance in which he uses the word cursed with Adam and Eve is cursed is the ground because of you. And already this story changes to becoming a story of hope because what we see is humanity is not cursed. The world is broken. The world is cursed because of humanity. But God has hope for them because they are not like the serpent. Their story is not finished like his is. There's more for them. So God starts to unpack this idea to them. And he explains to them that sin isn't neutral. The choice to rebel against God, to reject God, to try and rule our own lives, is not a neutral action. It's not as though if it wasn't for God coming in and punishing them, nothing would have happened. We see that from the moment they take of the tree, everything's broken. L let me ask you this. When did shame enter Adam and Eve's lives? Was it when God started speaking to them? It was much before that. It was their own actions. God has not imposed shame upon them. Their own hearts have become broken. So again, God is unpacking this for them. And what he says is there's really kind of three areas where sin has affected creation. It's affected it physically, relationally, and experientially. There are physical consequences to sin. What we're told in the physical consequences is that both for Adam and Eve, first Eve, in pain shall you bring forth children. 
And then in Adam, in the Hebrew, there's kind of a, a mirroring of that sentence when it says, in pain, you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. Normally when we read this, because God says this to Eve, we kind of zone in on her and say, oh, I see. This is her fault, and so she's going to get it. No, there's pain for both of them. Pain for both of them. Pain is now a part of humanity's existence. And for Eve, it is true that he, he zones in on that on childbearing. Now, any woman that's have a child understands this part of the Bible. Men, we're a little slower. But I remember when I learned about this, uh, when uh, Janine and I had our kids, all four of them were C-sections. So the way that works, if you're unfamiliar, is you kind of get a day that you're going to have your baby, and then you stroll in at the hospital, and 20 minutes later, you're in a recovery ward holding your baby. As long as everything goes right, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And there's, there's a lot of pain for Janine in the recovery, but leading up to the birth, it's quite nice. That's my wife's words, not mine, before anyone gets angry. But here's what's not nice, is when you roll into the hospital, you, to get to the, the surgery, you have to go past all these poor women who have been in hours of labor, pacing the corridors, sweating, and just hoping that soon might be the moment when they can be taken to delivery. And they look at you as you casually stroll to your C-section room, pain-free, as though you have broken some serious rules. That's when I realized how tough this was. But again, the idea here isn't simply that God is kind of visiting some pain on Eve because of what she's done. He's explaining and unpacking for both Adam and Eve, because of your choice, the world has been physically fractured. Your bodies that were designed to do specific tasks for me are no longer going to do those things the way that they were intended. What he isn't saying is that childbearing or eating and, and working the ground for Adam are going to be horrendously, maximally painful. He's saying they're going to be more painful than they were supposed to be. Our bodies were designed to do, what our bodies were designed to do perfectly, they will now do imperfectly. Now it's easy for us when we read a passage like this is what we do is we, we draw a line from what God is saying and then we decide on the conclusion and we say, okay, so what God's saying is whenever I have any kind of physical pain or illness, it must be because of my sin. I must have done something wrong and so God is visiting physical pain on me. Now what Bible, the Bible does teach is that all pain in this world can have its uh, beginning traced back to sin. However, it's important to realize that there is no direct lines between your personal sin and my personal sin and the things that happen to us physically. And in fact, there's a, a place in the Bible where Jesus' disciples ask him this very question. They find a man who's paralyzed and they say to Jesus, so is this guy paralyzed because he did something wrong or one of his parents did something wrong? And Jesus' response is really good for all of us because what he says is actually... It's got nothing to do what, with what he has done and what other people have done. Actually, this has happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that, I really think, has a profound lesson for us as we think about the consequences that God visits on the earth because of sin. His consequences aren't to bring us harm. They are to draw us back to him. God disciplines those whom he loves. So we're told in the New Testament that when, we, when God disciplines, when he brings consequences, we should look at that like a father who cares for us and wants to woo us and draw us back to the one who can set things right. We're told as much in Romans 8. In Romans 8, we're told this, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul writes here about the brokenness of creation. And what he's saying is that all of creation, it's fractured. There's disasters, there's pain, there's suffering, and we are groaning for when God might set it right. It's not pointless. All the suffering and the pain is not meaningless. In fact, God has permitted it, has allowed it in hope, in hope that we would come back to him, that we would trust him, that we would seek him. C.S. Lewis said this, I think it'll help us understand it a little bit. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. So here's what the good news of the consequence of physical pain is. Is that it need not be a story of tragedy. I'm sure in this room there's a variety of ways in which we experience the physical brokenness of our world. There's various kinds of illnesses and disease. There is disability. There is inability. And yet that need not be a story of tragedy if we are followers of Christ. If we trust him and believe in him, actually that brokenness can point us towards one who can set things right. Even in the midst of suffering, we can become a people who are transformed into bearers of Christ's love and goodness and hope. We've all encountered someone who, because of their faith, even as they suffer physically, it's like they've become more beautiful because their, their suffering couldn't dampen them. It couldn't break them. It points all of us towards a God who sustains them and loves them. Pain is God's megaphone. And if you are suffering today, I want you to remember and understand your story is not a story of tragedy. Your pain is not unseen. Even in that brokenness, there is a God who sees you and wants to bring you hope. There's also relational consequences to sin. Eve is told by God, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. A verse that has unfortunately become kind of almost a pattern and explanation of how men and women should interact with each other. But this is not just something that's being applied to Eve. Again, it's being applied to both of them. Because of sin, it's not just that Eve's desire will be contrary to her husband. Now her husband is also broken, and he is not going to honor and love her the way he's supposed to. The word for desire here, when he, God says your desire will be contrary to your husband, is it's the same word, the same phrase, in fact, that God uses a chapter later when we meet Cain and Abel. And he tells Cain, sin's desire is contrary to you, Cain. Sin's desire is to bring harm to you. It's not good for you. And so what he's saying to both Eve and to Adam is, because of sin, because of what it's done to your heart, your desire for one another is going to be contrary to what is good for one another. You are no longer going to serve and support and encourage and lay yourself down for one another. Now you have been moved from being partners to competitors. One of you always has to be on top. You have to use the other person to serve your own needs. You have to dominate because your desires and your impulses are now what's most important in your relationship, not the other person. 
And the truth is, that's not just present in marriages, is it? That's present in almost every relationship we have. We are prone, because of our sinful nature, to use people rather than to serve people. To take from people rather than to give to people. That's what sin does to relationships. It twists what God intended to be beautiful, a depiction of his goodness and his love, into this competition of who gets the most. We look at Adam, we see it straight away, don't we? As soon as he sins. Remember what he said about Eve when God introduced him to her? At last, born of my born, flesh of my fats, this is the greatest gift you've ever given me. And then what happens when he sins? It's not me, it's her. Take her. It's her fault. Throws his own wife under the bus. This woman who he said was born of his born, flesh of his flesh. That's what sin does. It makes us into people that would throw our own loved ones under the bus to protect ourselves. Ephesians 5, Paul gives us the the best image of what relationships should look like. He talks about marriage. He says in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, I realize there's a lot in that passage, and it's been misused in a lot of ways. But what I want to use it for this morning, I want to see in those verses is a restoration of what God intends for men and women, for husbands and wives, for all relationships, in fact. That it would no longer be about a competition in which we use the other person to meet our own needs, but it would become a partnership in which we give ourselves for the sake of the other. Where we lay ourselves down to honor and love and cherish and bless and encourage. Do you notice what Paul says about Christ? He says, husbands are meant to be like Christ. They give themselves up for their wives. They lay their lives down for their wives. That's what relationships are meant to reflect, the love of a God who gives himself up for us. Relational consequences of sin are devastating, but Christ offers us hope of reconciliation because what Christ does for us is he meets every conceivable need that you have relationally. So that another person no longer becomes something you need to use, but they can be something, someone with whom you can share what Christ has done in your life. You can love them, you can serve them, you can lay yourself down because you need nothing from them. Christ has supplied your needs. Some of the worst marriages, and I've been a part of this myself, I'm sure all of us have, the, the most broken moments of our marriages have been when we have tried to use the other person to meet our needs instead of Christ. Do you know what that does to some? It crushes them. To make them what only Christ can be for you will crush them. And so Christ comes to be in himself everything that we need so that now we don't need to give in to this impulse to be in a competition, but we can love and we can serve one another. And so Christ turns a story of tragedy into a story of hope. Because now when we feel that prick, that consequence of sin in us that drives us to be selfishly motivated, 
we can instead let it drive us towards Christ, who was himself everything for us. And we can say, I want to love, I want to serve, and I want to relate to people in the way that Christ is related to me. Not as objects to be used, but as persons to be blessed. Lastly, sin has experiential consequences. I mentioned earlier that the, ca- the serpent, when he is cast, it says, cast are you. And what we read for Adam and Eve is that cast is the ground because of you. The whole world has been fractured and broken. And, and this is, again, it's a twisting of what God intended for them. So some of the mandates that God gave them was to, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. Sin warps childbearing. He told them, I want you to love one another. Sin warps the relationship they have to one another. God told them, I want you to cultivate the ground. I want you to work the garden. And sin warps and curses the ground. It fractures everything. So Adam and Eve are told that their sin has brought a curse on the world around them. Not just their bodies and relationships. So work is now laborious. It's difficult. It's painful. It's uphill. I remember this every year when I got to mow my lawn, right? We're coming up to spring season. I got to get out there every weekend and keep it short. And I just think, Lord, quicken the day when I can live in a world I don't have to do this. Because I know in my gut it's broken. This is not how it was intended to be. Serving and, and cultivating was not meant to be laborious. Ecclesiastes is such a good book at explaining this to us. And I, I hope that as a church one day we get a chance to kind of go through Ecclesiastes it says some really profound things. And one of them is in Ecclesiastes 2.11 where Solomon, King Solomon, he says, I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. See, if we work for ourselves instead of God, the consequences of that is that we are going to be striving after the wind. It's going to feel like vanity. That's why so many people sit in a cubicle and ask the question, am I contributing? Am I making an impact? Is my job meaningful? Because we feel the vanity of work in a sinful world. We don't know, is it going to make a difference? Madonna had this really great quote. She said one time in an interview, even though I have become somebody... I have to work to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. That's just a modern way of saying what King Solomon said. I'm striving after the wind. All my work, all my effort, all my labor. Story of work can be a tragedy or a story of hope. You can work for your own sake and your own identity and your own legacy and discover that no matter what you achieve and how far you go, there will always be more. Or you can lay yourself down for Christ and say, even in the brokenness of this world, God can use my laborious work to achieve great things. That I can expend myself on hard work so that someone else might see him, might know him, might experience his grace and his love and his gentleness and his tenderness and his hope. The curse of sin has placed us in a world of struggle and tragedy. And in order to see the story of hope, we need to see the covering of Genesis. So I want to come to this real quick, quickly. Because this is the best part of the whole chapter. This is the part where we feel like, okay, 
things are going to end in tragedy. It's not going to go well for these two people. Here's what we read. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We read this passage as God unleashing his anger and his punishment on two people that he is done with. Let me ask you this. Why does he take the time to clothe them? That's what he does. He sees them in their inability to cover themselves. They've come up with these fig leaves to cover their shame and their guilt. They're trying to deal with these horrible feelings that they now have. Why doesn't God say, go and sit in your fig leaves? And let them remind you of what you've done to me. Why does God take the time to say, let me do this better? Let me cover you. Let me bring you warmth and protection. Let me deal with that shame. Because he loves them. Because he's not done with them. Because sin has not been enough to convince God to reject them the way that they have rejected him. It's not a story of tragedy. It's a story of hope. It's a picture of the God who comes and walks this earth in the person of Jesus Christ and covers us. Romans were told by Paul, in Christ your sins are covered and blessed is the one whose sin is covered. In Galatians 3.27, as many of you who are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, have been covered by Christ. Do you realize that this is the first sacrifice in all of scripture here in Genesis 3? In order to clothe Adam and Eve, there has to be the shedding of blood so that he can get those animal skins. They try to deal with their sin in their own way and God says, let me do it better. Let me do it for you. Next, we see that God sends them out of the garden and maybe this is the power. We think, okay, this is the tragedy. They can never be in Eden again. They're cast out into this broken world. But really quickly, let me point this out. First of all, God knows how self-destructive self-determination is. He knows what pain it's going to cause them. So what God says is, I know that they have become like us. They've, they've become self-determiners. They want to run their own lives. That's going to end badly for them. So rather than just leaving this alone and letting this endure forever, let's move them away from the tree of life so that we can do some surgery, so that we can be at work in them. I don't want them to stay like this forever. I don't want this to go on for eternity. So he sends them out of the garden as an act of mercy and grace. A severe mercy to be sure, but a mercy nonetheless. So that he can deal with it. And then let me point this out. If we go to chapter 4, is it now a story about human beings and God has vanished off into Eden somewhere else? He holds conversation with their children. 
tells his children and he counsels their children. He goes on, and generation after generation after generation, God remains with man and woman to serve them, to love them, to guide them, to counsel them. So who else has left Eden? God. He hasn't remained in his paradise and thrown us down to figure it all by ourselves. He stepped into our own brokenness with us. He said, I'm gonna walk through this with you. I'm gonna be with you. Even as you've rejected me, even as you have broken and fractured everything that I made for you, I'm not leaving. So God walks with them. Again, a picture of the grace of Christ who incarnated himself so that he could know our sorrows and carry our griefs and feel all of the brokenness of this world and carry it on his own back to the cross. Never leaves us, never forsakes us. See, Genesis 3 is not a tragedy. It's a story of hope. Genesis 3 is the story of all of Scripture, that though we've rejected God, He has not rejected us, that He Himself comes to cover us, to walk with us, and to restore us. To be certain there's a great gulf because of sin. There's pain in our hearts. But God has said, I will not let you be trapped in this for eternity. And if we go to the real end of the story, if we go to Revelation... Want to hear how the story really ends? One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the end of the story. Not the tragedy. The comedy that even as this serpent has sought to deceive us and distort us and to twist us and to break us, God restores us through his own sacrifice. Sin has brought great brokenness to our world and to our lives, but God offers us restoration in his son, the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world that his blood might renew us and remake us and bind up those fractures in our heart and our world. The one who removes the curse of sin for everyone who comes and trusts in him. The one who wipes away tears from every eye and who guides us back to the very tree of life from what, what we were cut off from. The God who offers to write our story of potential tragedy into a certain story of hope. That's who we find in Genesis 3. And that's why this is the good news according to Genesis. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this chance to approach your word, to be shaped by it. God, let us not be tempted to believe the lies of a serpent who tells us you're not good and you're not needed. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be twisted to see in the pages of Genesis 3 a tragedy, but rather I would pray that we would see the story of hope. 
a story of hope that we are going to celebrate with all of our soul, mind, strength in these next few weeks. A story of a son who comes and walks with us in our brokenness and who in his tenderness binds up our wounds and carries our brokenness to the cross. Father God, thank you for writing into our story of potential tragedy a story of certain hope. We love you and we would be lost without you. And so we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. It's true. Praise and honor to the God who has given himself for our sake. That's why we gather here. That's why we sing these songs. Because our story is not one of tragedy, it's one of hope. Just a few reminders as we finish this morning. If you do want to volunteer or help support Extravaganza the next week, as Lee said, we've got over 90 kids. It's going to be a big effort. We would love anyone who can give whatever they can. You can find information of that uh, by the Welcome Destiny the Kids area. And then just for men as well, I wanted to remind you we're coming in fast on our next men's breakfast. It's going to be April 1st here at this campus at 8 a.m. on April 1st. So make sure you register for that so we have a good idea for food. We'll send out information on that this next week. But you can also get information at our welcome desk as well. Uh, if there's any way we can pray for you, support you, know that there's a place here where you can find that. And you can stop by our prayer room or you can come and talk to myself. Especially if you're a new guest with us, so glad you joined us. Let me leave you this morning with this benediction. Let's pray this together. May we leave here this morning in the name of the God who has covered us, who has walked beside us, and who in his son turns our story of potential tragedy into a story of certain hope. It's in the name of Christ Jesus that we go. Amen. Amen.